Ruth chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, says, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. He said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those who are sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. If you will not, tell me that I may know. Well, there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And the man said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Now the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Four points um, on those first six verses, and I'm going to move quickly here. First is just a contextual point. Um, The Leveret concept, and I've gone into this in greater detail in previous messages from Ruth, the, the, the Leveret concept was that a family name shouldn't come to an end in Israel because of the unfortunate but very real circumstances that people die. And uh, the, the case of um, Elimelech and Naomi is not a perfect representation of what the law had in mind, but it does illustrate the point that it's within the realm of possibilities that the, the father and the sons could all perish, or a woman's husband uh, who was the heir to an estate could perish and leave no offspring to eventually inherit. So the principle was put in place so that the, the, the tribes, their boundaries, and the possessions of those who had inherited the promised land um, would always have an heir. Um, The function ends with the arrival of the Messiah. The need for it ends with the arrival of the Messiah, in my view, because with the advent of Jesus Christ and him accomplishing redemption for his people, there no longer remains a purpose to Israel being genetically confined from the rest of the cultures. In fact, Jesus ends his earthly ministry with a commission to his disciples to go to the ends of the earth, making disciples and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But um, in Naomi's case, a relative of her deceased husband ought to have taken her as his wife in order to provide an heir to Elimelech's estate. In Naomi's case, however, more to, to be more clear, it's likely that she was too old to bear children. And so it, 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 it's, it's almost like none of Elimelech's relatives were expected to marry her because there just wouldn't have been any point. They weren't going to produce an heir. 
Additionally, the fact that Ruth is not an Israelite, but a Moabite, a person from outside the ranks of the tribe, uh, in fact, a person from a, a people group that had been expressly forbidden to Israel to commingle with, makes me think that it, it would be unreasonable to expect one of Elimelech's relatives to marry Ruth and thus provide an heir because they would have to be, depending on how you define it, they would have to be sinning along with Malon, who married her to begin with. Um, all, of that, all of that only serves to muddy the waters. Right? Well, so what's, what's going on here? Well, what's going on here is Boaz has rightly identified that there is an opportunity to engage the principle of leveret marriage and thus redeem Naomi by marrying Ruth and having Naomi adopt whatever offspring Ruth is able to produce. So it's complicated. It's kind of convoluted. And at first, I was really bothered by how much hay the commentators spill over the fact that this first redeemer ultimately declines to marry Ruth. And I mean, if you have commentaries on Ruth, go read them because they are ruthless. You don't even get a name because history won't remember this scoundrel. I'm like, woof. I hope these people don't write about me someday. Um, I'm not sure that he was under a legal obligation is my point. He did, however, have the opportunity. I think he should have taken it as well. Second, so that's first, just, you know, contextual point. Second, a, a practical instruction for those of us who call ourselves Christians. Where does Boaz conduct his business? Out where God and everybody can see it, right? I, I mean, righteous people generally don't make deals in dark, smoke-filled rooms. not saying it's impossible that that could happen, but generally speaking, uh, Christians aren't found in those places. The light of day, plenty of witnesses, and a clear conscience tend to go hand in hand. Um, Boaz is obviously a man of status. He's referred to, when we meet him in the beginning of chapter 2, as a worthy and powerful and wealthy man. And it seems to me, just based on my observations of our culture, especially in the last three years, without getting too deep into the weeds, um, that people that have power tend to wield it uh, by applying pressure to others, whether they like it or not. And Boaz doesn't do that. He could have grabbed this guy by the scruff of the neck, dragged him back into an alley and said, listen here, I'm marrying Ruth, and if you so much as whisper a word against me, uh, your end will be swift and unbeautiful. But that doesn't happen. He sits down with this man with witnesses and conducts himself honestly, transparently, and righteously. It's a wonderful example to Christian men. Amen? Third, another practical life guide. Boaz's willingness to put his own preferences and plans at risk by informing the other potential kinsman redeemer of the opportunity he has is also instructive. Verse 3 is the first time in the entire book of Ruth that we hear about this land that, that 
Naomi has and is going to sell. And it's fascinating to me that Boaz leads with the bait rather than, or leads with the hook rather than, than the, the bait. See, in my mind, the, the goal that Boaz has in his mind is not the, the, to gain the land, it's to gain Ruth. Right? But the more attractive thing we're going to see, practically speaking, is not Ruth, it's the land. And yet that's what Boaz leads with. Like he's like, hey, the destitute widow has some land that she's going to sell. And the outcome of him sharing that information could have easily been the loss of the opportunity for Boaz to marry Ruth. The moment you, you start wondering whether the right thing to do is the right thing to do because you've discovered the cost is the moment that you need to count the cost and do what's right anyway. But boy, that's easier said than done. Fourth, we don't have to hide the reality of Christian suffering. The potential first redeemer accepts and then declines the responsibility of redemption. When it was cheap land from a widow who wasn't going to be creating any kids, it looked like a great deal. When it comes with the attachment of Naomi, a fertile woman, and her mother-in-law, all of a sudden it doesn't look like such a good deal. This is why we don't lie to people about Christianity. We tell them the whole story. Listen, John 16, 33, Jesus says, and he's talking to his disciples, I've said these things to you that you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Acts 14, 21 and 22, after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples... They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Listen to this. They returned to the disciples, strengthening their souls, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through much tribulation, we must enter the kingdom of God. So we speak in real finite, clear terms with each other about what's involved in becoming a member of Jesus Christ and his church. Read Hebrews 11. Read Acts 8. Read 1 Peter. See how the saints in history were treated. I mean, in 1 Peter, the way, the way Peter says it is, brothers and sisters, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that's come among you as though some strange thing were happening which gives you the idea that we should expect to be on the struggle bus simply because we have professed faith in Jesus Christ. However, the faith prosperity movement is so insidious and has its tendrils so deep into our culture that Christianity is almost synonymous anymore with the idea of life without trouble. It doesn't, the Bible does not present that at all. And how many have professed and then later recanted their faith in Jesus Christ because the, pro the presentation of the gospel that led them to claiming to believe excluded this important truth. 
all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's 2 Timothy 3.12. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We don't like that. Like even in this room, there are mature believers seasoned by years of walking in obedience in faith. And you hear, uh, you hear that verse, you hear Paul say, all and you're immediately you start thinking well but you know maybe culturally he just meant at that time because Rome being Rome it was going to be troublesome and there's certainly been seasons through Christian history where people have suffered more than other times we don't we don't like this idea the problem is he goes on from verse 12 to say while right so all who desire to live in Christ Jesus godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while Evil people and imposters go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Uh, I mean, the news is just filled with red meat that I could throw out to this audience that portrays perfectly what Paul's describing there. I have to be careful at work. Not to say things that are true, because things that are true are inflammatory, hateful. It's baffling. It's a strange time to work in the corporate world, isn't it? You find yourself wrestling with your own conscience. <laughs> this isn't in my notes. Uh, I'm going to trust that the Holy Spirit just gave this to me to share with you. Because this is my approach. It might be a terrible one. Maybe I'll listen to the sermon in five years and be like, oh, you fool. But I don't think so. So the principle that I operate on is uh, do not lie. Okay? The principle that I one day hope to be able to operate on when I've matured, when I've grown when I've got more courage and confidence in my Jesus than I do right now is tell the truth. So right now, I'm just tucked back here safely in don't lie, which means don't give your support to something you don't actually support. Don't add your amen to things that you know are evil. And sometimes in, in, in our culture, that's almost the best you can do if you want to have a job. Don't lie. Don't clap at the DEI meetings when everybody else is cheering for what's clearly racism, what's clearly evil. But I'm not to the point where I can stand up and go, that's racist, you're all evil. It doesn't seem productive to me. We see the man's true feelings, right? When Boaz reveals the widow Ruth, it's that whole, but wait, there's more moment. He says, I'll, yeah, I'll redeem the land. And then Boaz says, but wait. We see Boaz's true colors too because he stands to lose just as much as this first redeemer. The first redeemer declines, demonstrating, I think, now please don't, like, please do hear my heart. Don't hear some uh, abusive megalomaniac preacher that wants to keep everybody under his thumb filling their hearts with guilt because that's not where I'm at, all right? Hear my heart. 
What this demonstrates is this principle that there are plenty of people, there are plenty of people who would gladly take heaven. But they don't want to pay the price of being holy. Give me eternity of pleasures and enjoyments and and all of the health and wealth that, that the gospel promises, but don't ask me to forsake my sin. This first redeemer is like, oh, I'll take the land because I can just make it part of my whole situation. But I don't, wanna, I don't want it to cost me anything. Boaz counted the cost, so should we. Uh, verse 7, so Ruth 4, 7. All right, now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. I'm glad we've moved on to other things, right? So, so there was constantly foot fungus in Israel. Uh, so when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Verse 11. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in... F- <laughs> I hate this word so much. <laughs> Epath- Ephratha? Ephratha? I don't know. I, wa- I always see it and I want to go Ephrataha, but it's got to be Tha, right? Anyway, all right. And, and be renowned in Bethlehem. That one I don't struggle with. Uh, and may your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So we're not going to worry about the sandal thing. Uh, the deal is done. The first redeemer rescinds his commitment and the responsibility falls to Boaz. Three points. <clears throat> uh, to anyone who sees Ruth being sold like property here and would claim that this is proof the Bible is made up, misogynistic, ancient, unenlightened, claptrap ridden by pigmen on mushrooms, First, these were different times. And as a father of daughters, I'm so thankful that our culture has seen women elevated to a more appropriate level of dignity and value. Amen? You are not property. You're not. Not of your husband, not of your father, not of anyone. You possess no less worth than any man. This is biblical. You are not less intelligent, less delightful to God, or less useful to creation. You are not an object. You are a living soul. You are worth more than all the gold, all the diamonds, and all the real estate on this entire earth. You are no less a daughter of the creator of the universe. And the sons of God aren't either. We are equal in dignity, worth, and value. You're not less sinful either, ladies. (laughs) 
You have the same propensity to evil as any man. Perhaps you possess a little less strength, maybe. But you possess no fewer wicked thoughts. You have just as much need of Jesus Christ as I do. No man can worship Jesus for you either. You must do it for yourself. You have to. God is not interested in your husband's prayers, your father's prayers, or my prayers any more than he's interested in yours. Every person, man or woman, will be judged on their own. Second, don't let the language of a vastly different culture 3,200 years ago distract you from the beauty, charity, and romance of Boaz's decision and actions and how it reveals the heart of God. This man puts everything in one sense at risk to redeem Ruth from the misery of being widowed in her 20s in a culture that didn't care too much about foreigners. This is a good man doing a good thing for the right reasons. Now, Ruth might have been a smoke show. I hope she was. But I don't know for sure. The Bible doesn't say that she is. It doesn't say that she's not. Let's say she was. And that you, upon seeing the, the, the Bible state, and with the land I have bought Ruth, and you recoiled in your own heart because you hate chauvinism and misogyny so much, and you are such a feminist that you can't stand for women to be looked at and treated as objects. So you've just kind of like mentally shut down to the point where you don't want to hear any more. Let's pretend you're right. The only reason that Boaz is interested in Ruth is because she's hot. Let's say you're right. I seem to remember in chapter 2, Boaz saying, listen, Ruth, stay in my fields. I have instructed the men not to harm you. Don't wander into another field. I can't protect you over there. Doesn't that make it seem like it was kind of a, a thing where guys just sort of did what they wanted? So isn't it reasonable then to assume if all Boaz was interested in was that from Ruth, he could have taken it without all this rigmarole? He's a good man doing the right thing for the right reasons. Finally, please note that whatever offspring Ruth bears as a result of this marriage, let me start over because I wasn't even paying attention and I'm the one talking. Please note that any offspring that Ruth creates as a result of this marriage, any son that she has, is going to inherit the land that Boaz just purchased. Boaz will get nothing in the way of personal enrichment. He's buying a field. Look at me. He's buying a field to which he will never get the deed. His own household will bear the cost of this union, while Naomi and Ruth will reap the rewards. That's what's being described to us. Did you hear that? Boaz 
will pay the price. Naomi and Ruth will get the benefit. And I can't think of anything less misogynistic than that. Well, let me take you to the cross right now. And, and behold there the Redeemer, the man Jesus. He hangs in agony. His head is adorned with a crown featuring inch and a half to three inch spiky thorns that are piercing his flesh all around. His face is swollen beyond recognition because he's been punched so many times. His beard is missing because it was ripped out handful by handful. His back is torn and mangled because Roman soldiers had lashed him with a shredded whip filled with glass and broken bits of iron. His hands are stretched out to either side, tied to a cross of wood. Nails, crude spikes have been pounded through the palm in order to fix his hands to the ends of the crossbeam. His chest heaves for breath because the weight of his entire body strains his shoulders so that he cannot fully extend his diaphragm to fill his lungs. Meanwhile, his back is dragged on the rough wooden stake behind him. His feet are nailed, one atop the other, to a pedestal upon which he can push down with his legs if he wants to raise himself up in order to get a breath and in so doing grind the shattered bones of his feet against the iron spike that runs through them to bear that weight up. He is naked. There is no loincloth covering him. He bleeds and he's thirsty and he finally cries out. He finally cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if the Lord had answered in that moment, Jesus' rhetorical question, he would have answered with a picture of you. This is why. Because you are redeeming this sinner you have become sin on their behalf. You are paying the price for their evil. You are satisfying my wrath toward them, which is totally justified, so that I can look upon them with the affection that I have for you, my son. You are redeeming them. You are paying their cost. What will you say? What will you say? about that. I don't want to be bought and sold like an object. I am my own person. I have agency. Who is God to tell me what's right or wrong? Look at me. He, he made you. That's who he is to tell you what's right and wrong. I don't believe that. Okay, doesn't change it. He made you. He gets to decide what's right and wrong. Doesn't the potter have the right over the clay? Does the pot get to go, why'd you make me like this? No. 
He made you, and whether you believe that or not doesn't change the fact. Like suppressing the truth doesn't make it less true. And we love that. We embrace that. We know that that's a true statement. When we have a man who happens to have long hair and wears dresses standing in the White House staff room having his picture taken while everybody pretends that it's a woman and we know, we're like, dude, just pretending that you are doesn't make it so, right? Like we get it and that's, but that if you shine that same light on yourself and your own unbelief, listen to me, God made you. He made you the way that you are except without sin. You corrupt the image. You marred the picture with your evil, with your sin, with your decisions to glorify yourself. And now the right response is not to suppress that truth so you don't have to deal with it. The right response is to behold your Redeemer fixed to the cross. Now we are all Ruth and Naomi, starving, destitute, like Naomi's husband, Elimelech and her son and Ruth's husband, Malon, all our hopes and dreams have been ultimately killed by sin. We are marching inexorably toward our own graves. I was getting ready this morning and I'm like, oh, look at that. Like this was bad enough, right? This was, that was tough. And it took me a long time to let it go. But then this morning, I see the old man thing happening where little, for no reason, little bits of my skin are turning browner than the rest of it. And it's just like, oh, that, that's right. None of this is improving. This is, this is all getting worse day by day. Right? I peaked at, I guess, 17, 18. <laughs> And it's all downhill. But it's a constant reminder, isn't it? You have your first uh, doctor's visit where he closes the door and wants to chat. And you're like, oh, this, we're not just going to give me the thumbs up and send me out. And he's like, oh, I'm concerned about three or four things. That's right, I'm going to die. Like, kids, God bless you. I love you so much. You guys, I get to say it now. I had to listen to it when I was your age. Now I get to say it. You think you're going to live forever. Well, you're not there. <laughs> Every day we are given is a gift from God. And all of us, to some degree, we borrow that breath that he, that he loans us and we use it to blaspheme. We use it to say, uh, I'm supreme. I'm king, I'm God, I'm the master of my fate. Like every lie you've told, every immoral thought that flits through your mind, every moral shortcut, every little failure, and every giant one too. All these things declare that we think we are God and he's not. Our way is right and his is not. Because he's gracious, we haven't already been blotted off the face of the earth. That's it. Because he's gracious. You have nothing. You have no currency which God needs. You can't buy his forgiveness. You can't trade for his approval. You cannot glean in his fields and then claim you've earned what you've gathered. It all belongs to him. What we need is a redeemer. Amen? So Jesus, he hangs on that cross, wounded by my sin and by your sin. And there he died. 
killed by my sin, by your sin. Here's the thing, though. It was not the rope that held him there. And it wasn't the nails that held him there. It wasn't even, as the song says, it wasn't even my sin that held him there. It was his love that held him there. That's why he did it. Like Boaz spent his fortune to redeem Ruth because he loved her. Jesus spent his life to redeem you and me. And if he hadn't, you would have no hope. So the gospel's good news, right? And what does good news do? Well, good news invades dark spaces and shines light where there isn't any and tries to improve your outlook by giving you something to cling to in the way of hope. The gospel tells us the story of us. We are sinners, lost, hopeless, dead in our transgressions, guilty before God, wandering in sin. How much mental illness do we have to uncover in ourselves and in those that we love before we realize, boy, that's a true statement, wandering in sin. It tells us the story of Jesus, sinless, in perfect fellowship with God the Father from eternity past to eternity future. Completely satisfied in that relationship, Jesus Christ was alive, brilliant, vibrant, filled with glory, delighted in by God. And yet we find him wrapped in human flesh, hanging on that cross, dying so you and I could be redeemed. And the gospel then tells us to do two things. You want to know? Some of you already do. Some of you don't care. But those of you who don't know, here's what the gospel calls sinners to do. Just these two things. And neither of them has to do with money. First, the gospel calls you to believe. Now, the word of God would not have to tell you to believe the gospel if believing the gospel were an easy thing to do. So you got the whole world, all of history and all of science and all of philosophy arguing against us, telling us some dude ate mushrooms and then he saw a burning bush and all the rest of this has been constructed from that. Yes, Jesus actually existed and yes, he was a wonderful teacher and a decent man, but he was not the son of God. There was no flood. Aliens might have built the pyramids, but there was no flood. It's not easy to believe the gospel against your own doubts. It's not easy to believe the gospel when somebody with thick glasses and a white coat tells you radiocarbon dating has told us that the earth is 50 billion years old. It's hard to believe the gospel against the backdrop of that kind of certainty that humanity has. But that's what the gospel tells you to do. Believe. Second, repent. It just means to turn. Turn away from your sin. Say no. Say, I, I, I don't want to do this anymore. Trust in Jesus Christ. Be in a relationship with him through faith. And then the question is, what will you do? What will you do? If you will not believe, the gospel tells us that you will die in your sins, be judged for them by God, 
who most certainly exists and most certainly has the right to judge you. And then you'll be cast into a place of weeping out of the presence of God for all eternity. I don't know if the lake of fire is just figurative language or if it's literal, but I know this. You will be equipped with a body capable of suffering death for all of eternity. That sounds horrible. If you believe the gospel and turn from your sins, trust in Christ, you get the reward. You get eternal life. You get restored in fellowship to your creator. You get to worship the one who gave his life to save you. You get adopted by the Father. You get the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, keeping you company every moment of every day. You get cleansed of your sin. You are forgiven. You are loved. And you are cherished. You are delighted in. God does not send his son to suffer and die to redeem you so that he can then stay a little bit mad at you, but not as mad as before. He delights in all those who trust Jesus Christ for salvation. He's not mad at you. He loves you. And Jesus bears the, the cost so you will get the inheritance. Verse 13, Ruth 4 so Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And the woman, women rather, said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who's not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Uh, all the grandmas in the room say amen, right? That first grandbaby comes out. That's got to be something else. Because you're like, I don't ever have to spank him. I can just feed him cake. <laughs> then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. <clears throat> the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Just one more point. I'm just going to skip the next genealogy. I don't, couldn't bring myself to care, so I'm assuming you, you can't either. Uh, like all illustrations of redemption, this one has limitations, and we reach that when we reach the sexual union between uh, Ruth and Boaz. That's not what God is interested in with you. Okay? That's not the point of the Redeemer. So we're going to leave that part for a future marital counseling moment and focus on Naomi one more time. The women said to Naomi, bless God who's not left you without a Redeemer. And I would say to all of us, myself included, bless God who hasn't left us without a Redeemer. Naomi has the joy of raising a grandson given to her by Ruth. The boy grows up. And I'm guessing around the time he's 15 or 16, he meets this sweet little Israelite girl from down the road. And they fall in love and they break up a couple times. But eventually they get together, <laughs> get married, and then, then she gives birth to a, a boy named Jesse. Obed names him Jesse. Jesse grows up and he gets married and he has many sons. So Obed gets to be a grandpa, just like he was a grandson. The youngest of these sons of Jesse is named David. 28 generations later, 
28 generations later, a man named Joseph, descended from David, decides to go ahead and marry and redeem, like his ancestor Boaz, a girl who is likely to be shunned, but this time for being pregnant before she's married. She eventually gives birth, and they name him Jesus. That baby grows up to be the man who redeems every sinner who trusts him as the son of God. The point of Ruth, if I had to pick just one, and I hope that this is an encouragement to you, and I realize it's taken us four weeks to get here, but there have been little points along the way, right? The point of Ruth, if I had to pick just one, is that God is never done working. We met Naomi, and one verse later, her husband died. We met her sons, and three verses later, they were dead. Naomi was in a foreign land with no husband, no sons, and no hope. Call me Mara, she said. For God has testified against me. I went out full, but I've come back empty. How many of us have thought that? We had such dreams when we were young, didn't we? At no point when I was learning to ride a bike was I like, and someday I'll work for the Federal Reserve. (laughs) Such dreams. So many plans. And then as we grow up, we have these traumatic life experiences that leave us emotionally damaged. And they accumulate. You go to therapy if you're, you know, wise, try to get a little help sifting through all that. And eventually you get to the place where you're like, I think pretty much all I do with my downtime, rather than be imaginative and creative, which I used to be, is just sift through the ashes of everything that's broken. And then you start noticing how you contributed, right? How many of those fires you started? Whether you meant to or not, Find out you're a little bit of an arsonist and you start wondering if there's any way to pick up the pieces and move on from wherever you're at. The providence of God might seem against you. You've got a diagnosis in hand. Maybe none of us know about it. Maybe all of us know about it. The future doesn't look bright for you. Or you're at the tail end of a a lot of loss and life is not real bright at the moment. If you're a reasonable thinking human being, you start to go, what is the point? Why am I here? Well, we're born, you suffer, and then you die, and God likes it somehow. No. So behold Naomi. It's pretty dark in Moab. And I think part of what the Lord's trying to tell us is that when moments in life seem darkest, when things are incomprehensibly bleak and dismal. When the earth shakes and tombs are opened up, when the sky turns black in the middle of the day, and a centurion standing at the foot of the cross looks up and whispers, surely this was the Son of God. God's not done working. It's not over. It's not the end of the story, but we got to wait for next week for that, right? It's Easter. 
We'll do Lord's Supper in the whole nine yards. We have hope because we have a Redeemer. Let's pray. <clears throat>